Good afternoon. Welcome. Thank you for coming. Uh, the Cato Institute today is publishing in the, in the United States this edition with the Fraser Institute of Canada of the Economic Freedom of the World Report. This is the 2012 edition. It's an annual uh, report uh, that uh, we publish alongside more than uh, 70 think tanks around the world that takes a look at the level of economic freedom in more than 140 countries in, in the world. Uh, over the course of several decades. This has become a very important uh, reference work and also uh, a very important source for research establishing a relationship between policies and institutions and particular outcomes. Our uh, two of the lead uh, authors are here with us today, so I'm pleased to, to be able to introduce them. Uh, I should... Uh, I should say there's a third uh, co-author, who's Josh Hall, who's not with us uh, uh, today. Uh, they'll speak for 10 minutes uh, each, and then uh, we'll be happy to take questions. And you can find, by the way, the entire text uh, of this report at the Cato Institute's website. Uh, Jim Gortney is the principal author of this report. He is an eminent scholar at Florida State University, where he directs the Stavros Center for the Advancement of Free Enterprise and Economic Education. Uh, he is the author and co-author of several books, including a leading textbook in, in economics. And he has also been uh, the chief economist at the Joint Economic uh, Committee at the U.S. Congress. Jim? Thank you very much. Uh, it's a pleasure for me to uh, be here. Ian said we were going to talk 10 minutes. Both Bob and I are uh, uh, professors, and it's a little bit dangerous to give a professor a microphone and expect them to talk anything less than 50 minutes. Uh, so I, uh, I said that I would sort of think of, of shooting for seven minutes, and maybe that means we'll end up with uh, 10. I'd like to give just a little bit of historical background related to the Economic Freedom of the World Index. It really is a project that dates back to 1986, so it's uh, a project that's been underway for more than a quarter of a century. 1986, uh, Milton Friedman and Michael Walker were talking about how that uh, the term democracy and economic freedom were often used in, in uh, parallel kinds of matters, not making any distinction between the two, and it was important to make a distinction between the two. So they agreed to, uh, the Fraser Institute would sponsor, uh, the Fraser Institute of uh, Vancouver, British Columbia in Canada, would sponsor a series of uh, conferences, seminars, that were really designed to do just two things. One, to clearly define economic freedom and measure it for a large set of, of countries. And Milton Friedman agreed to invite a number of the world's leading scholars including people who participated in essentially the development of this index, in addition to Milton and Rose Friedman, were uh, people like uh, Gary Becker, a Nobel Prize winner, Douglas North, a, a Nobel Prize winner, and people like Peter Bauer and the late Bill Niskanen. Uh, so a, a, quite a large number of the world's leading scholars participated in the development of this index and as it has evolved through the, uh, through the years. Now, 
In the early conferences, in terms of defining what economic freedom was, very early on that there was consensus view that economic freedom was about personal choice, where individuals choose for themselves rather than have a collective decision-making process choose for them, and about voluntary exchange, that essentially economic transactions would be based upon voluntary exchange through markets. And secondly, or thirdly, freedom to compete in markets. And finally, the protection of individuals and their property from aggression against others. And you have a set of slides, and essentially the uh, uh, content that Bob and I are going to be talking about to a large degree is uh, included in those slides. So uh, you won't have to keep any notes. You may want to write a few things in the margin if you want. But those are essentially the four ingredients. So as we looked at the... Uh, uh, various institutions and policies across countries that in terms of how we would evaluate and use various components in order to measure economic freedom. And obviously economic freedom is very multidimensional, that those were always the guidepost. And if in fact you have a policy that's consistent with uh, voluntary uh, uh, exchange and personal choice, etc., that that would be a uh, a positive, if you like, and uh, if it conflicts with it, it would be negative. So we put together this index, which now includes 42 different components. Uh, and Exhibit 1-1 of chapter, in Chapter 1 gives the full set of components in this particular index. Each of the components are on a 0 to uh, uh, 10 scale where 10 indicates highly consistent with economic freedom and zero indicates uh, inconsistent or conflict with, with economic freedom. And these 42 different components are arranged into five major areas. The five major areas are the size of government. And the larger government is, the greater the reliance, if you like, upon budgets and taxes vis-a-vis -vis, uh, market exchange, the lower would be the economic freedom rating and size of government. So size of government is one of the areas. The second area is, is the uh, uh, legal institutions, even-handed legal institutions for the enforcement of contracts and protection of property rights. The third area is access to sound money. The fourth area is freedom of international exchange. And the fifth area is regulation, regulation of credit markets, labor markets, and business. So that's essentially the five major areas. We wanted this index to be fully transparent, that it would be uh, reproducible in the sense of we're not making judgments about uh, any of the components, that we're essentially using uh, variable and variables and data from secondary sources such as the uh, World Bank, the International Monetary Fund, the uh, World Trade Organization. Uh, the data appendix gives the source of each and every one of, uh, of the variables. And so uh, we essentially take the data uh, for, from other sources. For example, in the size of government area, the first component is, is government consumption as a share of uh, total consumption. And as that government consumption becomes higher, that's indicating that government is playing a larger role in terms of deciding what's going to be uh, purchased and consumed, and that the market area is playing less so that your rating would go down as government consumption increases as a share of total consumption. So we simply take the data from, the, in this case, the uh, um, World Bank uh, for each of the countries. There are 144 countries now in, in the index, 
and that uh, uh, allocate the rating for each of the components. And then within each of the areas, the components, we don't do any weighting simply. There, for example, I think there are four components, actually five counting the subcomponents in area one, size of government. We simply weight those components equally to derive a rating, for example, in size of government and a rating in legal structure and a rating in each of the, of the five areas. So 144 countries, zero to 10 rating for these uh, 42 different components. Uh, we're not making judgments with regard to uh, any, any given country. Now, if you look at the ratings, essentially the summary ratings uh, range from a low of around, uh, actually in the most recent index, a low of about four to a high of about nine. So the range is only uh, uh, nine points in terms of the uh, zero to, uh, in, in terms of the, the summary rating scale. And you can see there's a map in there in, in the uh, handout that you have that's color coded that I believe blue indicates that among the 144 countries, it would be countries in the top quartile or top 36, if you like. And uh, the green is the next uh, most economically free, the second quartile. I think yellow is the third quartile. And the least free quartile is red. So it allows you rather quickly to get an overview of uh, different regions. So if you look at North America, for example, that Canada and the United States are uh, both coded as colored as blue, indicating that they're in the top quartile. And when you look uh, at Latin America, for example, I believe Chile and Peru are uh, in the top quartile. In contrast, in the bottom quartile in Latin America, uh, you have uh, coded countries like uh, Bolivia, Venezuela, uh, Ecuador, Argentina, so you can spot them in terms of red. So you can look at, for example, the various regions and identify the freest countries in those regions and the least free countries in those regions. Africa, you'll note with a few exceptions, uh, is, is mostly red or red and yellow, indicating not very free, most of the countries in that region. Uh, Mauritius is an exception. Uh, in fact, it's um, one of the freer countries in the world. If you look at Europe, it used to be Europe, Western Europe would have been all blue. It's less so now that you have countries like the Scandinavian countries and Germany are uh, uh, still uh, uh, blue. Uh, but for example, France now has gone into the green category. Italy is into, into the yellow category. Uh, so variation ac across Europe and in Asia that you find a, a good bit of, of, of uh, variation as well. And Australia and New Zealand sort of stand out in that part. So you can, that map gives you a sort of quick overview. Now we want to go through and look at the uh, freest economies and the least free economies, give you a little bit more detail. Exhibit 1-2 of, of chapter one gives the rating for uh, uh, each individual countries. And we debated about whether it'd be a real smart thing to have a blind man take you through and go through all the numbers related to the different countries. We decided that might not be the best idea. And so uh, Bob Lawson, I'm gonna turn uh, things over to my uh, uh, colleague, Bob Lawson, who is a professor at uh, Southern Methodist University. And you might say, man, it looks like a lot of numbers in here. How does this blind man grind out all the numbers? And the answer is, he has Bob Lawson do it. <laughs> so I'm gonna turn things over to Bob. And let's, Ian, did you wanna? Okay, okay. Th turn things over to Bob. Thank you, Bob. All right, thanks, Jim. Yeah, my job today, as in real life, is to go through the numbers real quickly. And they are in front of you. 
And so we don't need to you know, go through each one of these uh, in any great detail. But uh, for, the, uh, for every year we've done this Economic Freedom of the World Index, Hong Kong is number one. I perceive that they'll be number one for a long time coming. But we didn't need to do an Economic Freedom Index to know that. If you know what, anything about Hong Kong, you know their tariff rate is zero. Their top tax rate is 15%. Their you know, property rights system is extremely good and so on and so forth. So uh, that's a pretty easy call. Singapore is number two. I like to talk about Singapore because it highlights the, the distinction between economic freedom and political freedom. Or, and so Singapore, of course, is, is a great place to open a business, uh, export and import, hire and fire workers. It's a great place for economic freedom, but it's not obviously the best place in the world to write an op-ed criticizing the current regime. So uh, Singapore is a strange country in the sense that it has a lot of economic freedom, but isn't really the, the highest standard bearer in, in political freedom. Uh, and then and you can see that some of the other countries that are in the top are countries like New Zealand, uh, Australia, Canada. Um, the United States has historically been in the very top. Uh, going back in time, we pretty much were number three throughout the period, Hong Kong, Singapore, and the United States. But beginning in the year 2000, the United States rating has begun to fall. Currently in the rating, uh, the United States has fallen to 18th place in the Economic Freedom Index. I'll talk more about the United States uh, in just a few minutes as well. Um, in terms of some other large uh, nations, I'm getting old, I can't really see. I can't, well, there's no optimal range here now. Um, in terms of some other large nations, you can find you know, countries like uh, Germany and France uh, score in, in sort of the, the 30 to 40 range. And you know, we get a lot of questions about China. China is, a, is ranked very low in our index. They are ranked currently 107th out of 144. And uh, you know, what do you do about China? You know, China, we all, our methodology gives each country one number. Uh, and China, of course, has within the country places like Shanghai, where if I gave Shanghai, if I were to subjectively give Shanghai a rating, it would probably get a rating like Hong Kong's. But it also has places like, you know, Outer Mongolia and interior provinces, which are still uh, not very economically free. So when you sort of slice and dice the data at the national level for China, we still score China as a very low, uh, low overall rating. Certainly there's been a lot of progress within China in certain places, especially economic zones. But overall, China does not show up anywhere near uh, the top uh, of the Economic Freedom Index. Uh, India is very close to, to China as well. Again, a lot of reforms in India that are, are measurable in the index, and we've seen India's rating go up. But again, uh, uh, it's still relatively low in the overall scale of the index. We, <clears throat> we also thought it might be instructive, given that the United States has fallen uh, considerably in the index down to 18th, to compare the United States with uh, our, 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 the so-called wealth, social welfare states of Northern Europe, the Scandinavian countries. And so it's interesting to note that among the four uh, Scandinavian countries, Finland and Denmark now score higher than the United States, and Norway and Sweden score just a little bit lower. But the United States is now smack dab really in the middle uh, of the, those social welfare states. And you know, one of the classic debates that people have is, is you know, U.S. versus Sweden, and, and, inc and increasingly that's not a debate that, that uh, we think is all that important to have. They're very much uh, very similar nowadays. We have uh, put an emphasis in this year's report uh, on Latin American countries. Uh, there is a special chapter, which Jim is a co-author with one of his students, on Latin America. And so there's a little bit of focus on one of the slides on the Latin American countries. Huge diversity within Latin America. Chile is a top 10 country, and Venezuela is uh, dead last, 144. So within the Latin American uh, uh, context, you have countries at, at both the very top and the very bottom and everything in between. So if you're interested in Latin America specifically, 
I might draw your attention to chapter three of the report because that's a focused chapter on, on Latin issues. And again, the big news is the United States. Uh, we have a, a, a little slide in there comparing the United States with Canada. Canada sort of as a reference point. Um, again, throughout most of the period, the United States rate ranking was third. Our rating, the actual number, pretty much increased during the 80s and 90s. Uh, but beginning in the year 2000, the rating began to fall, and consequently the ra ranking also began to fall. And uh, in 2005, Canada actually passed the United States. Americans have this sort of image of this socialist cold north land up there. And uh, in fact, um, Canada now has a higher ranking than the United States. Canada is ranked, uh, I think, tied for fifth or sixth. And the United States uh, is considerably below that. And so it's a nice uh, sort of comparison point uh, to, to think about. Um, there's also a couple more slides that are a bit busy. Um, they work very effectively in a sort of animated PowerPoint context. but. Uh, this giving you an idea of these specific lines. If you look at each area of the Economic Freedom Index, area one, which is the size of government, the ratings are down. Area two, which is legal structure, private property, those numbers are very much down. They're down by about two points on our 10-point scale, which is a very large decrease in, in, in our scale of things. The monetary numbers aren't, aren't really changed much, but the trade numbers are also down, and the regulation numbers are also down. So we're seeing larger government, weaker property rights, more intervention in, in international trade, and more regulation in the United States. All of this dating pretty much to the year 2000, continuing on uh, through the most recent data, which we have. I should mention the most recent data are for the year, the calendar year 2010. They really reflect year-end 2010. That's about as, as near a date as we can get to the data. There's also a much busier slide following that that gives you some individual components. And I put that in there only to emphasize that it's very broad-based. It's not that there's any one area of the Economic Freedom Index that the United States has, has slipped in. It's uh, across the board. There are a couple areas of Area 1 that have fallen. Several areas of Area 2, as I mentioned, have fallen dramatically. Um, the Area 4 and Area 5 ratings have also fallen. Individual components have gone down some significantly. In some of these cases, we've had numbers that were 9 or 10 in the year 2000, and today they're 5 and 6. I mean, it's a 4 or 5 you know, point decline on a 10-point scale. It's, it's an extraordinarily uh, significant move. For those of you who are statisticians, a standard deviation is about one. So moving down three points is like moving down three standard deviations. If that means anything to you, it, it, it's a big number. It's a big decrease. Um, one of the qu next questions is, why does this matter? Why do we care about losing economic freedom? Well, Jim and I uh, and a co-author at Florida State, Randy Holcomb, have, a, have done some research on the impact of economic freedom on economic growth. I don't know, Jim, do you want to speak to that? There's a microphone in front of you, so okay. please. Well, essentially what uh, not only the work that uh, Bob referred to that uh, Bob and, and Randy Holkin and I have, have done, but actually there's been uh, at this point almost 100 articles that have looked at the relationship between economic freedom and changes in economic freedom and measures of performance such as level of investment, the growth rate, and achievement of, of higher income levels. And virtually without exception, all those studies have shown that countries that are more economically free or that move toward economic freedom have uh, more investment, higher levels of, of, of growth, higher levels of income, and lower levels of poverty. Uh, it allows us, you can do statistical analysis to essentially estimate the impact of a unit change in the economic freedom of the world uh, index. 
And we did that for countries using data from the 1980s through 2000 and essentially found that a, a unit reduction, a unit change in economic freedom results in a change in the same direction of economic growth over that decade and the next decade of between 1.4 and 1.9 percentage points. And so when you take the change of the U.S. from the 0.95, a little bit less than a unit change, that we would forecast that the growth rate of the United States during 2000 to 2020 is going to be roughly 1.3 to 1.8 percentage points lower than the historic average. And how that translates on per capita GDP is it would forecast a growth of per capita GDP, GDP per person, if you like, during 2000 to 2020 of between 0.4 and 0.8%. Now, that's well below the long-term average of, of 2.2 uh, percentage points. And interestingly enough, when we look at the decade of 2000 to 2010, is right within that range, 0.7 growth rate of per capita GDP. Uh, so given the reduction in economic freedom, uh, if we simply hold where we are, if we neither go up or down, if you like, in the next decade in terms of economic freedom, we would forecast that the U.S. growth rate during the next decade is going to be well less than 1%, probably in this sort of 0.5 to 0.8% uh, range. Now, in terms of GDP as a whole, essentially population grows at about eight-tenths of a percentage point. So the forecast for GDP would be, let's say, in the range of something like 1.2 to 1.6 in terms of the growth rate, whereas the long-term historical growth rate of real GDP is 3%. So one could think of this as essentially, given the policies that we've followed in the last decade, our expectation would be that the historic growth rate of the United States is going to be cut in half. That rather than having a, a growth rate of around, say, 3% in total GDP, it's going to be half that, around 1.5. Or if you look at per capita GDP, rather than a growth rate of, of around 2.2%, uh, it's going to be uh, uh, in the range of 0.4 to 0.8. So uh, given the changes that we've made, we are... Uh, uh, the expectation is that the growth rate of the United States in the next decade is, is going to be low relative to the historic average. When we sort of listen, I listen to these sort of talking heads on, uh, say, CNBC and other business news programs, and they talk about what the economy is going to do in the next six months or the next three quarters or next year. I'm a little bit fascinated by that because I don't know what, the, what it's going to do in the next uh, few months. But I can tell you that the forecast for the United States, given the, the track that we're on, is for sluggish economic growth and uh, that uh, very slow growth in, in per capita income and living standards, given the, the, the choices that we've made during the past decade. Okay, thank you. You did that better than I would have done it. Um, there's also a few charts at the end, and these are also in the book itself, uh, that look at the sort of cross-section, across-country uh, economic performance in various dimensions. And it's done in that same sort of color-coded quartile way, blue, yellow, uh, blue, green, yellow, and red. And what we find there is countries that are higher on the economic freedom index have more income, they grow faster, they're living, they're long, the, the, the length of life, the life expectancy is longer, 
And one of the neat charts in there is the average level of income of poor people, people in the bottom 10% of the population, the average incomes are much higher in countries that have, are on the high on the economic freedom scale. So no matter how you slice or dice it, what we find is that countries that score well on the economic freedom index uh, show better economic performance uh, for, across the board, longer lives. There are other charts in the book about uh, you know, health and various other standards. And with that, I'm going to be uh, concluding.